Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everybody. This is the only podcast uh, where two brothers discuss a thing they love. In this case, comic books. I'm one of those two brothers, Kevin Hines. I'm the other brother, Will Hines. Um, You know us. Yeah, we're the guys who host this podcast. We're uh, funny dudes um, <laughs> who are also related and yeah. also read comics. I don't know. Yeah, that's, 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 that's it. Really, that's the subtotal of our and figured out how to do a podcast. Yeah, our resume is like a sentence and a half long. <laughs> um, and that's all it takes to get a podcast, everyone. That's why um, everyone's got one. This is what I think is going to be a bonus episode, a mailbag episode, because we're in the middle of a season of guests where we're doing interviews with some really cool friends of ours and some comics professionals. But we're doing a lot of those at just weird times, depending on the guest's schedule. So um, we're sort of falling behind on email because, you know, I don't know, because they're being recorded sometimes a month ahead of time or whatever. So we're, we're doing this catch up episode just to answer email. And I am pushing for it to be released as a bonus episode, although we haven't even decided that yet. Yeah. So, I mean, if this is not Wednesday and that really threw you off, I'm sorry, I guess. I don't know. I'll take the blame. Yeah. It's Um, just that's what it is. But if it was a treat, you're welcome. Kevin will take the credit. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we're going to just read some emails today. Hey, if you want to email us, uh, our email is screwitspidey at gmail. Uh, dot com. That's from our first season. We didn't want to change our email address. Our first season, we, when we were Spider Man only, mm-hmm. and then we also have an Instagram account. Screw it, comics. Pretty exciting. Yeah. Pretty great. Really. Uh, yeah, um, we yeah, post a- images on that Instagram account uh, from comics that we talk about. Yeah. So, and uh, we also have a, a Twitter account. Screw it, comics. And then, if you're a real hardcore fan, we have Screw It Recent is another Instagram account, which is just stuff Kevin's reading. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really directly pertain to the podcast at all. And then screw it, Spidey, left over from our first season is just for the Spidey only content. Yeah, that's right. Um, I basically post on those when I have downtime from the main account because uh, it's hard to keep everything up at once. It's tough, yeah. But uh, that's, that's the way to get in touch with us. And so, uh, yeah, if you'd like to send us an email about anything we discussed today or just about comics or just about, I don't know, whatever, like whatever's on your mind, really, like it's on load. Yeah, yeah. We answer most of our emails. Yeah, we have a somewhat high percentage. So um, please uh, please uh, write into us, and I guess we'll do some emails now, right, Kevin? Yeah, let's get into it. Um, first one we got here, the oldest one in our mailbox, is from uh, Bernie Lockard. Mm-hmm. Who would you cast? This is another casting email, Will. Okay. Who would you cast in the hopefully upcoming Masters of Menace movies? Mm. And he reminds us who's in the Masters of Menace, yeah, which good, is good. I can't quite remember. Cannonball, Crafty Clown, The Great Gambonos, and Princess Python. Oh, right. The Steve Ditko Spider-Man circus villains. These are the guys. This is the circus of crime minus the ringmaster. Right, right. They they took the one memorable guy out of the circus of crime, and this is who's left. This is where they sort of like halfway through the story, Krusty the is it Krusty or is that I mean Simpson and Simpson? It's Crafty, name? Crafty Clown, Crafty the Clown, um, just Crafty Clown. Okay, <laughs> I, mean, good. I don't know. That's not much less ridiculous. Crafty so, the Clown seems like a, a, a Amy a Sedaris character, <laughs> but Crafty Clown halfway through the Dicko story sort of gets forced. We are told that he's the leader, but he doesn't do any leading, really, right? It's just sort of like, Crafty will know what to do or something. 
Yeah, he's smarter, they say, than the rest of them, I guess. So Princess Python thinks I think she should be in charge. The great Gamboni seem fine just following orders. Um, I think um, I would say Robert De Niro <laughs> as a, a as crafty. No, as Cannonball. Okay, Al Pacino as crafty clown. All right, I'll um, Ryan uh, Gosling as. Um, uh, did you do Gambino already? I haven't done the great Gambino. He'll be Gambino. Two of them. Gambino. Is he well, one of them will of be right. No, Ryan Gosling will be one. And then Charlie Day will be the other one. <laughs> okay. Wow. Very different types. <laughs> uh, Princess Python. Uh, I think it'll be CGI Carrie Fisher. <laughs> uh, she's free after, I think she just finished uh, Rogue One. She, they didn't cast her in the, the last Jedi uh, Star Wars movie. They, they didn't use her. So she's free to be in this. Okay. Um, uh, who's, who's left? That's I don't know. I think that's all he mentioned, and I'm not going to look up. They're going to be the else. heroes of this, even though they are villains. They're going to yes. be the protagonists of the story. So I'm going to say Elizabeth Banks will be the villain. Maybe some like maybe she represents like big time circus comes to town to squeeze out the mom mm. and pop circuses. You know, real shopper of the corner type of thing. You've got mail sort of situation. She's uh, the Barnes get, and Noble of circuses or the maybe, Amazon, uh, I guess. Maybe Hugh Jackman. He played uh, P.T. Barnum, right? Uh, I don't know what that movie was about. The Greatest Showman. Yeah, I think he plays P.T. Barnum. So he could show up as a, another ringmaster. So it could sort of be Easter egg for Wolverine and an Easter egg for the ring, uh, the greatest showman. It'll be uh, real fun. Just All a right. cameo. Just a cameo. Um, let's throw the vision in there. I just got finished watching WandaVision. Let's have the vision. <laughs> let's get Paul Bettany in there. He's good. <laughs> yeah, he's real good. But I don't want him here as the vision. I want him here as the as Jeffrey Chaucer, the character he played in A Knight's Tale mm-hmm. when he was the hype sense. man gambling addict. I mean, a hype man would work in this. Yeah. Jeffrey Chaucer gets re- res- accidentally resurrected by Crafty Clown, and that sets events into motion. That gives them a fighting chance against Elizabeth Banks' big circus. I'm, you know what? <laughs> I'm liking this. Yeah, Sony, give us a call. <laughs> I got Tell my me. enforcers pitch ready to go too, Sony. <laughs> if any of the villains, they, I mean, all they have rights to are the villains. And you don't, you guys don't know what to do with them. You, you're doing like a Morbius movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Venom makes sense, but they're trying to do like a Silver Sable. It's just like you got the Masters talk, of the Menace just sitting there. Talk to the Milksops. We got ideas for the Masters of Menace and the Enforcers. And I'm, I'm not kidding about the Enforcers. I have a great idea for a TV series about the Enforcers. I mean, for sure, if you did the Enforcers season two, you could have the Masters of Menace. In <laughs> That's a great rival gang to show up. <laughs> no matter what you do with the Enforcers, there's room for the Masters of Menace. <laughs> they they fit. Um, they're so they're not masters. They're not menacing. But <laughs> no, uh, well, I mean, one is a big snake. She was pretty menacing. I guess so. The snake is menacing. The team is less so. The guys who get shot out of a cannon, I mean, they're only selectively dangerous, right? Like, they need time to set up the cannon, to point it at you. And like, yeah. I mean, the other two guys are just, like, good at gymnastics, right? I mean, <laughs> it just, uh, and Crafty the Clown, uh, Crafty Clown, rather, is a clown who they also perform. So it's like faces on posters. Like, he'd be so easy to track down. Oh, it's the clown. <laughs> Remember the clown in the circus last week? That's yeah. the same clown who robbed our bank. <laughs> you should go arrest him. Well, they, they don't have proof because the two guys in cannons, they got fired at the cameras and they took out the cameras. We'd like to hunt them down, but right now we, we're being stymied by the enforcers at every turn. That's priority one. Tripped up by Montana's rope. 
Uh, our next email is from Alon Kaplan. Alon's mm-hmm. uh, an improviser from New York. Will? Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, this is a long one, so I'm going to be selective in what I read. Uh, I was a big fan. Uh, he knows me from the UCB, he says. I was a big fan of Will on the podcast. I heard him on. If only I'd known that making a deep cut reference to the Master Planner saga in a scene was a foolproof pass to a Lloyd team. So he's mm-hmm. saying that if he had mentioned the Master Planner, I, I would have put him on a team. I didn't have such power at the time, but he's right. It would have affected me. <laughs> it would have, it would have, if it could have, if I had that power, it would have worked. Uh, my dad grew up collecting comics in Argentina and started reading and collecting again when my brothers and I were old enough to read. As a kid slash teen in the 60s and 70s, he had bound up issues into hardcover books and brought them over to the U.S. when he moved here. So we have some early issues of tons of comics that are worth nothing, but it's still really fun to read as originals, half in English, half in Spanish. When we started collecting, we pretty much only got DC comics, the ones, the one exception being Spider-Man. Hmm. I also got those Marvel Masterwork collections of the first 40 issues of Spider-Man and read them probably 10 times. When I listened to your first season, I was pretty much able to picture every panel exactly. It's like your podcast was created specifically for me. Uh, That's great to hear. Uh, You had a question about getting younger kids into superheroes. I was first exposed to comic books through those encyclopedias. Uh, Those are usually written by Tom DeFalco, he notes. Uh, And I always had the idea that I'd be able to read all the storylines that were mentioned. Alas, that was pretty impossible in the early 2000s when I was doing most of my reading. But now various apps have made any issue of any mag you might want. So during the pandemic shutdown, I decided to fulfill my childhood fantasy of reading Spider-Man from issue one. Wow. I'm currently on issue 153 of Amazing Spider-Man 1976. And I'm also several dozen issues deep in the Marvel team up and just about to start Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, he has some comments on there, but first I want to say is that's a rough period in my opinion. <laughs> you're about to head into, you get yeah. to slog through the next, the next batch. Like spectacular had some pretty good art at first, but then it gets like really messy for a while. And I think like until basically the Roger Stern on amazing Bill Mantlo on spectacular, it's tough. And I don't know, Marvel team up. There's a, a run with Claremont and John Byrne. That's probably pretty good, but it's also pretty disposable. Uh, anyway. Uh, but, I can't. but good luck. We uh, we hope we haven't discouraged you. I consider myself a huge, huge, huge Spider-Man fan. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but let uh, us know if you make it through. Here's a few things he's noticed, Well, Okay. One, Peter Parker is angry. He yeah. picks fights with people all the time, yells at his friends and girlfriends, and often is really mad at himself. He's extremely hot-headed, something that I think gets lost in any of the TV film adaptions. It's a big part of his character, at least in the 60s and 70s. Uh, comments, Well. I think that's true, and I think that's Steve Ditko. I think Ditko himself was quite a stern uh, person, no pun on Roger Stern, just like, just kind of like rigid about his beliefs and stubborn. Was it, was it a pun on Daniel Stern? Yes. Okay. And um, yeah, I was trying to make a City Slickers joke. Okay. But it, I, th- it read. I think, um, and so I think like the, the way Ditko would draw Peter would be like, you know, punching desks and like slamming his fist through something. <laughs> That's and the like, exact image I thought of when he said Peter Parker's angry is him slamming his fist down into that desk and like breaking it Yeah. Uh, when he's uh, the first issue of the Master Planner saga, the thing that could have gotten this guy on an on a, on a improv team. Yeah. Um, so I think that's left over from Ditko, but like Lee's dialogue, which was so jovial and funny, was way more 
uh, impactful. And as time went on, that is the Spidey that everybody remembers. And I think so the further you get away from Ditko, the less angry he is. That's my thought, yeah, Kevin. It definitely was still there for a long time. Like the, the, this guy like storms off and just gets like rages of fury. It was definitely there for a long time. I'm kind of glad it went away because it definitely feels toxic. Yeah, it doesn't age well. doesn't look very heroic. Yeah. I don't mind him being upset and angry and emotional, but, like, so mad that he, like, destroys a desk or, like, th- like throws things or punches holes in walls or whatever. Like, those guys are assholes. Yeah. That's, like, it looks like Peter's got a drinking problem or, like, yeah. or uh, just some sort of deep anger management problem. So it's one of those things where, although it's totally true, and I do remember noticing that when we reread the Ditko stuff, at least to myself, if maybe I didn't say anything. And yeah. I'm I'm glad that went away. Uh, but also, it does make sense that Peter Parker, in a real world scenario, would be that angry. With his life circumstances? Yeah. I mean, he lost his parents, lost his uncle, blames himself for that, kind of has a lot of bad things happen to him. Nobody seems to like him. All his decisions kind of don't work out. I can see that character becoming, like, toxically angry. You don't want that to be the case, yeah. but, like, you can see him it becoming certainly like a- is. An angry radio talk show host. A therapist would sit down with him and be like, yeah, this all makes sense. We got some (laughs) stuff to work through. Yeah. You got bit by a radioactive spider and then your uncle died the next day. All right, let's get into it. Yeah. Uh, Number two, it's amazing to see how attitudes towards policemen and war uh, change. Uh, At first, while Stan Lee is running the 60s, cops are pretty much portrayed as doing the right thing. Even when they also want to capture Spidey, it seems to be for a good reason. Flash goes off to Vietnam and then comes back to visit every so often and talks about war glamorously. Then as civil rights movements get more public uh, publicity and the situation in Vietnam becomes more and more of a disaster, Flash becomes more of a depressed, tragic figure. He comes back traumatized, lives in some dinky apartment way out in the furthest reaches of Queens and feels like he needs to redeem himself. The cops are portrayed as trigger-happy jackasses who ignore the facts right in front of them. Well, that's it. Um- I, I've noticed this also. Uh, yeah. I mean, it sounds like what's our writer's name? Elon. Yeah. So Elon's in the seventies and or I, I think, yeah. Elon, sorry. Um, I'm not uh, sure. I remember, I remember when you look at Marvel comics from the seventies and also even just television shows in the seventies and movies, the, the world gets grittier, especially New York. I also think New York in real life at that time was going through like, a down period, like crime was up and the subways were covered in spray paint and um, people were sort of nervous and the big blackout in 78 and the son of Sam serial killer. So it's like you're heading and the end of the Vietnam war, of course, over the whole country and Watergate, the president resigning and being sort of publicly uh, found to be a petty criminal. Um, You know, it's, it's the world got darker, but I also think that, the cops being glamorized was also Ditko. He was a big pro cop guy. Yeah. It was probably more Ditko, if anything. Yeah. Um, like the, the, the cops are almost he-men in this, in the Spider-Man world versus I think other comics where they were just sort of, they were good guys, but sort of there in the background, like they were sort of like punching out villains in Spider-Man comics. Yeah. Did Ditko uh, had a real, uh, he was a real law and order guy, um, yeah. philosophically and temperamentally. And so, that is that's Steve Ditko DNA right there. But I, I also think Stan tended to be a sort of moderate liberal type who was kind of like not a revolutionary himself in terms of yes. like, you know, he, he 
kind of toads, the sort of mainstream middle-aged man's view in the middle 60s. Yeah, uh, it's not surprising that Stanley uh, was a little bit behind the curve. Right, right. Like he's, he wasn't a teenager, so it wasn't like Vietnam happened and he was like, you know, boo. He was sort of like, yeah, America, war effort, great. I served in the war. This is a good thing. And then by the end, probably saw the signs and was like, oh, maybe maybe it was bad. This is a bad war. I see it now. Versus some people who I doubt maybe Ditko ever changed his mind was things like that, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it is interesting. And Kurt, Kirby, so both Stan Lee and Jack Kirby served in the war. This is the kind of thing where I only know it in a cursory way, but like, I think Stan had like a PR job and didn't see like tough action, but I think Kirby like was in battles. Mm-hmm. And I like, so too. even though Kirby like did do war comics, I, I think he was pretty anti-war. And uh, and both of them were very like anti Hitler and like, um, I mean, who isn't anti Hitler? But like, you know, anything that smacked of being like Hitler, they they were quick to sort of like do a comic book villain version and take down. But they were uh, they were not big protest guys, I don't think. Yeah, the early protests and and comic books, even this is post Ditko. Uh, Peter Parker's kind of dismissive of them. Yeah, he's like these crybabies or whatever. He's uh, like, come on, I like to see these guys get a job. And he sounds like a, a middle-aged man when he's complaining yeah. about them. And I think it turns pretty quickly. I, he probably uh, Stan probably got email emails, letters from people, um, and emails from the future sent back, uh, <laughs> telling him like, uh, "Dude, I don't agree with this." And Stan is a guy who wants to please people, so he's like, "Then protests are good." <laughs> <laughs> or at uh, least yeah. it makes sense that a kid in college who mm-hmm. is is going to be more likely to be sympathetic to them and have friends who are sympathetic to them and stuff. Yeah. Uh, his third point is it is insane how often Spider-Man teams up with the Punisher and doesn't care that Castle murders people all the time. Like I'll murder people. They're both fighting together and Spidey doesn't bat an eye. Um, I think in the stories when they team up often, I guess I haven't read them all. This guy's read more than me now. Uh, they usually have some cursory line about like rubber bullets or some uh, baloney stuff like that. The Punisher does cause that problem where Spider-Man or Daredevil or someone would have caught him and thrown him in jail by now. Yeah. Um, I had not noticed this about the Punisher, but I do, you know, there is this weird thing in comics where if you are a hero character, I don't know, you even you're, you're forgiven for a lot of these things. It's like being done in the name yeah. of good or we assume that you have a code that you're working to. It's like a video game where the protagonist in the course of your video game shoots a thousand villains, but is somehow still like the good guy or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the Punisher's a hero. They're not going to throw him in jail because he needs to still be in his comic every month. They still want him to team up with Spider-Man because it's a, you know, connected universe. So Spider-Man just has to be like, wow, I got bigger fish to fry than Punisher. And he is just yeah. shooting bad guys. <laughs> it's it, it just, it's like one of those things like I won't kill people, but I'll let this other guy do it. Yeah. Is a weird line that they have to sort of ignore if the vigilante has his own comic. Right. If you're popular enough. Yeah. You can, uh, you can have a real sketchy moral code. It's like when they turned Venom into a good guy, they created carnage because they wanted to still have like an evil, crazy symbiote, but they'd be like, that is other symbiote that tried to kill Peter Parker. We're going to let him Peter's going to let him go all the time. So we need another one. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. And I hadn't noticed that. Thank you for that. Uh, he has one more uh, question here. Okay. 
Uh, I've always thought that the classic comic book characters were clearly products of their own time and have had to evolve and adapt to modern times, sometimes poorly. You can maybe see Peter Parker as a freelance photographer in the 60s because he gets shots of Spider-Man and nobody else can. But there's no way his automatic camera thrown up by a web on the side of the some wall would ever take good photos. And thinking about all the advances in photography scale and technology, nobody today would ever value this random kid's blurry photos. So my question is, who works best in the era in which they were created? Uh, or if you can make an origin movie for any superhero that takes place in the era that superhero was created, who would it be? Superman, Batman in the 30s, FF Spidey in the 60s, Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern in the 90s? Uh, that's his question. Who best fits their time? Yeah, who would be the most, the best to stay, like to be a period piece, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, I do think Spider-Man ages pretty well. The photography thing is tough, but... I mean, he can also, he doesn't have to just keep webbing his camera to the wall. He can also have better technology. Um, it just, it doesn't quite work that a kid would be working at the bugle, like when he's in high school. You kind of have to have him be a little bit older for that part of his story to kick in. I mean, the most zeitgeisty hero that I can think of offhand is Captain America, who was like created while World War II was happening. Right. But part of his story now is this, the sleeping on ice, right? Is the question who fits best the time they were created in? Because that's pre-ice. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's two, but there's kind of two Captain Americas. Yes, you're right. So 40s Captain America is um, pretty pretty zeitgeisty. Yeah. I mean, I mean not zeitgeisty, like fits. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think an interesting one would be Iron Man staying in the 60s. Um, cold, cold his technology war. is so like world's better than anything else that'd be out there versus now where it's like it's all nanotech stuff and it just sort of feels too science fiction-y like a suit of armor doesn't feel like enough but like in the 60s it does who am i always like this about comics how like you know something kind of takes over our imagination and then there's a comic book hero to reflect that you know like yeah like all the hacker computer heroes and villains of the 80s mm-hmm. um or like cold war type of villains in the 80s you know the russian slash Iron Curtain themed people. Um, I wonder what's now pandemic, I guess, but like even like privacy or yeah, um, information gathering. I don't know. Like what would be well, I mean, I think weirdly the thing now is um, anybody who's not a white man is just sort of like, let's get away from all this stuff. Yeah. Like Miss Marvel, who's basically just like a slice of uh, Peter Parker, but Muslim. Uh huh. Uh, add such a huge dimension. It's like, this is just untapped. It's almost like now we're just hitting all these untapped things that should have been tapped ages ago of different races, religions, sexualities, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. And, and I don't know enough about modern era heroes and, and villains to be able to pick examples Sometimes uh, when they try too hard to hit an era, like Screwball, it's like kind of too on the nose or whatever. It's like Screwball from the uh, video game, the character who's like really oh right, right, right. Um, social media clicks and likes. Yeah, it's like, all right, we get it. Like that's kind of lame. Well, like, Hook and the Dagger is very much a period of the '80s, right? The drug, the war on drugs, sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and they haven't really been big since. <laughs> Uh, X-Men, um, X-Men work well in a lot of different eras cause they're the persecuted minority. Mm-hmm. 
uh, which works well emotionally, like what teenagers feel like. And it's also a good metaphor for like racism and, and uh, sexism. And I mean, I mean, Superman looks the coolest in his era when like newspapers were like cooler back then. And um, yeah, I think, yeah. You know, it's a pretty easy argument to say that Superman as a story was successful. <laughs> like yeah. when it came out. I would argue. I would argue he's a hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Fun question. I don't know if we answered it well, but I like it. No, we don't have a good answer for it. Uh, our next email is from Peter uh, uh, Donatich. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey again, Milk Sops. Love rereading Secret Wars with you too for the 20th or so time, but I have to recommend another shooter era, shooter era comic. Dr. Doom slash Dr. Strange Triumph and Torment has an epic battle for the soul of Doom's mother written by Roger Stern and drawn by a then up-and-coming Mike Mignola. It's the perfect blend of Ditko's moodiness and Kirby's bombast, while also being an excuse for Mignola to draw tons of demons, devils, and monstrous Escher-esque landscapes. It could be the perfect excuse for a crossover with all crap a Hellboy podcast. Keep quipping and thwipping. Peter, <laughs> uh, I haven't read that. You know, that's one of the. That's I haven't read that either. I'm surprised. It sounds up my alley. Uh, I'm definitely aware of it. Um, I, I I know that exists, and it's just one I've never read. Uh, and I should. I'm Roger Stern. I want to get a hold of him. That's a that's a that's a good uh, that's a good lineup of creators right there. You're right. We should do it. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um. Jay Stanek mm-hmm. emails. Uh, the new season is great. Uh, and some future guest suggestions. Okay. Big fan Jay here. Hey, Milk Sops. Big fan Jay here. And I just wanted to let you know the Secret Wars season is incredibly fun. And I really appreciate the way you constantly analyze Jim Shooter's methods and also compare them to how Stan the Man would do it. Secret Wars is a fun comic and really captures the joy of the Marvel Universe. Also, I heard you were going to do some more guest-heavy episodes in the future. So here's some suggestions. Griffin Newman, Chris oh, yeah. Gethard. And old Scotty Ox uh-huh. would be great for the comedy side. Yep. So good suggestions. Uh, they've all uh, pa- uh, passionately talked about the power of comics before. Jason Manzoukas would also be a good guest. Sure. Uh, if you want to break out of the comedy scene, Austin Walker would also be a great guest. He's written about comics and video games in their intersection before and has a great perspective. He sends us a link of an article this guy wrote. Uh, I enjoy the podcast and I will remain a fan for the foreseeable future. Excelsior, Jay. Thanks, Jay. It was very thoughtful. Yeah. Um, we've definitely talked about a lot of those people's names. I, I think Jason Manzoukas can't read. Is that right, Will? Last I heard, Jason can't actually read. And um, yeah. so he'd be a tough one to get for. And I don't think he, um, I don't think it's him talking. I think like. He doesn't. Yeah. He gets dubbed the, over for all his podcasts. So and yeah, he's actually a very difficult guest to have logistically. But uh, yeah. those other suggestions are really good. It's funny, but it's a team of people. Jason Manzoukas is a team yeah, there's like a whole a operation. You got to agree to get the the robot in, and then the guy yeah. who dubs, and then somebody's got to read for him, and it's it's rough. Uh, here's an email from Thomas and Franzum that I emailed an answer, but I'm just going to read real quick. Uh, greetings, lactose lads. I recently started reading Peter David's Hulk on your recommendation. I was never a Hulk fan prior to jumping on to Immortal Hulk and subsequently seeking out the Peter David stuff. To my surprise, Hulk has now become one of my favorite characters, especially when the creators use the character to explore identities and negative emotions. Do you have any other story Hulk story arcs or creators that you recommend? Uh, And I recommended to him the Planet Hulk arc by Craig Pack. Mm -hmm. Uh, Greg Pack, I think I muddled that. That's a pretty long one. It ends with World War Hulk. It's really fun. Um, 
uh, as the next one to read. I really like Peter David Run. I think that was the next great arc. There's good ones in there as well. Those are the Peter David, Greg Pak, and Immortal Hulk are probably my top three, though. Yeah, I like um, when he fights the uh, the the elves beneath the surface in issue five, and the dude comes out with shorts. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's less of an arc. That's less Tyrannous, of an arc. I think, yeah. That's less of an arc, yeah, though, good right? Eight, I mean, it's good eight pages, I think. It's eight or nine pages of <laughs> high yeah. adventure. Uh, I mean, like, there's some good runs. Like, Bill Mantlow had a run. The Crossroads stuff seems really cool. But I, I, I haven't read that all consistently. And, like, uh, you know, Mark Wade did a short run. Jason Aaron did a short run. Those are great writers. When I was seven, uh, I remember buying an issue in the 7-Eleven that talked about Jarella and the Microverse. Maybe that yeah. was good. Yeah, that stuff's like, it's all there. I mean, Peter David touches on all of it. He has run with so long. Um, but I think after you read Peter David's, the next big one that people love is Planet Hulk. Hey, let's take a quick break. Hey, it's us again, your hosts, Kevin and Will Hines, and we want to hear from you. That's right. You can email us at screwitspidey at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at screwitcomics. We also have an Instagram account where we post images from the comics that we talk about, and that's screwitcomics on Instagram. That's three different ways to connect with us. Tell us your thoughts about the issues we're talking about or the format of the show or our life choices that have led us to this point. Reach out and tell us anything, honestly, and we might talk about it on a future episode of this podcast. Thanks for listening to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. Uh, Joe Dunham emails us. Hi, Kevin and Will. I've written to you a couple of times in the past, most recently near the end of your Sandman season when I had just started a Doll's House. I just finished reading issue 75 and I wanted to thank you for, I just finished uh, issue 75 and I wanted to thank you both for introducing me to the series is one of the best things I've ever read. Oh, great. I personally loved both the game of you and brief lives the most, but I think every arc is great. Gaiman has an uncanny ability to create every character with layers of depth and the serial format of comics lends itself to a slow plotting, perhaps better than any, than any other medium could. I'm a 21 year old about to graduate from college and other than some reprints of the first 11 issues of Lee Ditko's Spider-Man, I never read any comics as a kid. After watching Into the Spider-Verse in theaters, I bought a Marvel Unlimited subscription and never looked back. Because of this, I read a lot of comics with literally no level of nostalgia from my childhood. I can still say, though, that so many of the series you both mentioned on the show hold up exceptionally well. Miller's Daredevil and Simonson's Thor are still really engaging to read, and Secret Wars is still fun. You two don't seem to be as high on Claremont as some, but as X-Men and especially New Mutants are, in my opinion, the best the 80s have to offer and have made me an X-Fan for life. Uh, then he has a question, but uh, let's respond to that first. Well, uh, just, we love Claremont's X-Men. Yeah. We, we, we were never, for whatever reason, we never dug into it as much as we did into Spidey and FF. I don't know, just the way you get you get your titles that you're comfortable with and sort of stay there but we we never we loved claremont and i yeah. and i i think i read more of it than kevin for a while you definitely so. did yeah you i read some new mutants yeah um and i was in and out on x-men a little bit but i never really read enough of it it's one of those ones i want to go back and read because i think i'd really appreciate it um yeah so we're but yeah we're, i mean i would never argue that claremont was i think we've said as much like one of the most important one of the best creators at the time and what and maybe the second most important writer that marvel ever had um, you're talking about after Stan? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Claremont revolutionized superhero comics at least. Um, yeah. And 
you know, he did not, I guess, create the X-Men characters, but he, he, he figured out how to do them in a way that like, I think everybody in some way or another is copying. Yeah. He, Cockrum and John Byrne made the X-Men what they are. Um, so, you know, Hugh Jackman can thank Chris, yeah, Len Wein for creating the characters, but like Claremont really put the most number of issues in, kind of captured that angsty, emotional, human feeling. Uh, I mean, no, we make, we, we maybe have not talked him up enough, but we are, are, we love him and and respect him. Claremont is amazing. Yeah. And it, was, and it was a revolution. And like uh, in the 80s, like there was the X books and then there was everything else. Like they were almost their own genre. I mean, when you talk about these characters, like when you talk about X-Men, the stories that come up first are always Claremont stories. It's not the Kirby Lee stuff. That's garbage. Yeah. And it's not the stuff that comes after, even the stuff, some of that's good. It's all Claremont stuff. Days of Future Past. That's a Claremont story. Yeah. Um, the Death of Phoenix, Claremont. Yeah. Um, that's it. And like uh, the, uh, like making Magneto a more layered character is all him. Uh, introducing Rogue is him. Uh, and making making Wolverine what he is. That happened under Claremont. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah Claremont is huge. Yeah. Uh, and you're right to like him. Uh, I have a question for the show, since every email seems to need one, and that's true. Uh, <laughs> I was spoiled by Will to the fact that Dream dies at the end of Sandman. Yes. Don't worry, I'm not complaining. And I don't think that knowledge made the experience of reading Sandman any less than it would have been. That being said, that there was absolutely some things that if they were spoiled would bother me. I stay off social media each week before watching the new WandaVision. And I stay far away from spoilers regarding any newer comic runs I'm reading. However, I am constantly reading arcs from the past that I already know the results of simply, I know the result of simply from reading other comics that reference them. And I also find that it doesn't really bother me. Since your podcast is primar- primarily based on old comics, how are you? How much are you bothered by spoilers, or to what extent do you think spoilers lessen the experience of reading older comics? Does your answer change with regard to movies or TV shows? I've never been spoiler worried, generally speaking. Like most of the time, if I really love something, I try to see it early enough. It's not even spoilers. I just kind of don't want to know people's feelings about it like is it good or bad like i want to have my own it's not even really plot so much Mm -hmm. um and if i have waited a while whatever made me wait a while also means i'm cool with having it spoiled kevin yeah um sometimes i can't see things right away now um that i have a kid uh so it's just harder for me to sometimes free up the time to see things i don't love being spoiled but i we live just in an age where it's hard not to be and I'm just kind of used to it. So I, I can't get too upset by it. Um, it's like WandaVision, as an example, drops at 3 a.m. on Friday. I'm not going to watch it at 4 a.m. Yeah. My best, I'm going to watch it Friday night. Same with like The Mandalorian. It's like, it's hard to not be a little spoiled on it um, uh, or a lot spoiled sometimes. Like I can try to stay off Twitter and that will do most of it. If I know I'm going to watch it that night, I try not to go on Twitter that day which is generally good anyway, but I might still get spoiled. Uh, movies get spoiled. Definitely comic books get spoiled because a lot of times the big things that are coming up, you'll hear on the news yeah. like the day before the comics even for sale. Yeah. It'll be like a headline, like Captain America dies tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm like, well, all right, well, I know what happens in that issue. 
I think and, the common type of spoiler though is like it'll be like, wow, what a guest star in whatever. And, and yeah. it's like you know some big guest star is gonna show up. Right. At the very least, you know, some, something's coming. There's something spoilery yeah. coming. Or you'll even just hear, stay off the Internet. There's a big spoiler out there. It's like, well, that's even a, in a way kind of a spoiler uh, that I know there's something that can be spoiled. But if a story is only as good as that reveal, uh, then it wasn't that good a story. Yeah. Uh, like, um, uh, I don't want to spoil things as examples. <laughs> um uh, I mean, this will release far enough after WandaVision. I probably could, but I don't, I'm not going to. Um, it, it'd be like, um, I don't know, someone talking about Force Awakens and saying, uh, this is good, this is far enough back, and telling you that Han Solo dies in Force Awakens. Right, right. Like, that I got did, spoiled for me before I saw the movie. Uh, I did not know that before I saw the movie. I did know that. Um and I think that movie is okay. I don't think it's great, but I don't think I would have thought it was great if I hadn't known that. That Being surprised by that wouldn't have changed the movie for me at all. The things I liked and didn't like about it would still be the same. Um, like, I don't, I don't know. It's it's tough for like an ending or a moment to change something so much. Like even like I, Sixth Sense is always the example of like a, a big twist that like changes a movie. But I like that movie, even if that movie ends up with he's just a therapist and he helps that kid out. That's a cool movie. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a really cool movie. And it like, yeah, maybe the ending would be like, oh, the ending was kind of pretty good instead of this amazing kind of reveal ending. Um, but not knowing that ending, it's just like a, still a really cool movie. Yeah. Um, I knew the ending of that movie watching it and I really enjoyed that movie. Yeah. I um Rosemary's Baby was a horror movie that I did not know anything about, and it was really fun to watch that movie not knowing anything about it. And there is kind of a big thing that happens at the end, I would say, and that was fun to not know. Um, you, I think you described the entire story of Alien to me years before I actually saw that movie. <laughs> uh, but that movie's great. It like didn't matter. Like yeah. watching it, I was like, oh, yeah, Will told me about this story. Will told me about this one. Oh, yeah, this and this. this. Um, but I think when you told me, I was like, too, I was too, I was probably too young to see it. Yes, I'm sure that's so right. It's probably easier to have it described to me. And then when I saw it, it still scared the hell out of me. Um, uh, I was very uh, you know, unnerved the, by that. It's a terrifying movie. One thing that saves me by spoilers is a lot of the things I'm interested in are niche. And so there's only a couple places on the internet where they're going to be discussed heavily. Like I, a video games, for example, although video games are hugely popular and lots of people talk about video games, it's very contained. Like, if I avoid the subreddit of the particular video game that I like, it's not going to be spoiled on everyday Twitter. Uh, and and that goes true for a lot of comic books I like. Yeah. Um, there's not too many things that are in my interests that are being yeah. talked about by the general public. I seek out the places that spoil me, unfortunately. Not for the spoilers, <laughs> but like I'm on the locations where things are going to get spoiled. Uh, I'd prefer not to be spoiled. If, if if I could choose, I'd rather go into a movie not knowing anything about it and be completely surprised. Like, I mean, even things like WandaVision, these aren't spoilers, but it's like before the show ever aired, like it was like, these people are in the show. So that means these characters are in the show. I, yeah. I would see those articles. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, okay. I kind of wish I didn't know. It'd be fun to be surprised to see those characters show up. Do you ever get recommended something and people say, do not watch this without knowing anything like they won't even tell you what it's about have you ever had those recommendations uh, i feel like i have but i can't think of an example 
Um, Cabin in the Woods was one where that happened. Like somebody tweeted, like, I recommend you see this movie knowing nothing. I think it was Adam McKay who tweeted that. And for, mm. I had, I was like, you know what? I want to see a movie. I'm going to go right now and see Cabin in the Woods. And I knew, I don't even think I knew it was a Joss Whedon movie. He produced it. I didn't know like anything about it. And uh, it was really fun to just have it all unfold. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's always better. It's always better not to know things about it. Uh, but I just can't get upset about knowing things about it either. <laughs> so I think I that, told Will this once. I have a friend who gets upset has never finished reading the Harry Potter books and gets upset when she gets spoiled on things that are going to happen in those books. Um, and those are years and years and years ago. And it's just like, we, she'll be like getting spoiled by like an article about sports. We'll mention something that Severus Snape dies. And she's like, what? And it's like, I don't know. You had 20 years to read those books. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're mad at Harry Potter spoilers at this point, that's insane. Yeah. A uh, good friend of mine, but crazy person. <laughs> in, in that way, uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Joe, for the email. Uh, we've got a few more. Let's try to get through them. Uh, Justin Bridge emails us. Uh, I answered some through email, but I'm going to bring some up in this podcast. Uh, he talks about types of crossovers. Well, I think this is interesting. Okay. Uh, uh, self-contained crossovers. This includes Contest of Champions, Secret Wars, Cosmic Odyssey types of crossovers, where the whole story is contained in the event book. Uh, maybe details or consequences play out elsewhere, but for the most part, they're entirely self-contained in the main story. You don't have to buy any other issues to get the full story. They don't have to be big either. It could be a two-character side team-up or more commonly an intercompany crossover. Hellboy's full of these. He's constantly running into Batman and Starman or whoever, and the short series are one-offs. B, the line-wide event comic crossovers like Crisis on Infinite Earths, where the whole publishing line gets sucked into the action of the, for an issue or two. Sometimes in small ways, I wonder why the skies are red. Sometimes in big ways, a more extensive scene is played out that we only see a panel or two of in the crossover titles. Uh, Marvel and later DC Excel at these was over several summers in the late 80s and 90s where they mostly used the annuals to push the line-wide story as opposed to the regular monthlies. Sometimes they do a variation of a line-wide crossover, like when the X-Men had their timeline switched in the Age of Apocalypse, and all the X-Men had their titles changed, different names and concepts for three to four months. Uh, this also happened with the most recent Secret Wars. Hmm. C, thematic story without a central title annual to anchor it. Uh, so he's talking about like X-Book crossovers or Batman crossovers. Um, uh, the biggest one I can think of is the Axe of Vengeance storyline that Marvel had, which was one of my all-time favorite crossovers. The top arch enemies agreed to switch uh, to fighting their own enemies, to fighting another hero's enemies, the Mandarin versus X-Men, Spider-Man versus West Coast Avenger villains, etc. Uh, and D, the fourth, possible fourth type of crossover is the spillover story, where storyline is in a single title, Thor, Spider-Man, et cetera, plays out in a specific title and then spills out into the rest of the comics universe. In Thor, we spent years exploring a brewing, brewing as guardian realms of war that Thor was trying to stop, but that he failed to stop and it sucked into the rest of the Marvel universe into it. Um, yeah, um, I think that's great. Those are great categories for them. Um the, the spillover sort of feels like the crossovers with everything books to me. It feels like kind of the same, even though it started because even Infinity Gauntlet was a bit of that. It started in a Silver Surfer comic and then spilled over into everything. Hmm. Um, that's the common one is the one that just ties everything in. Every, every book touches on it. There's mini series about it because that's what they can sell the most. I'm a fan of why is the Baxter building covered in shaving cream? Oh, well, moving on. 
Those are, those are my favorite little moments. Yeah, I don't like, I'd prefer them being self contained or I, I don't mind a line wide one every now and then, like an X Men one or a Spider Man one or what have you. Um, or just like a crossover between two books. But have we ever pitched our or really your crossover in this podcast? Powerless? Yeah. Power outage. Power outage. I think we did. Um, the one that would ruin Marvel Comics. Yeah, the one that would make him go bankrupt. We would take our normal, terrible commercial instincts and apply mm-hmm. it to Marvel Comics and drive them out of business. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, our idea was to take all the characters' powers away for like an extended amount of time. <laughs> like 18 months or something. Yeah, I wanted to do at least a year. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, But now that comics come out twice a month, uh, 12 issues is really what I'd love it to, to be at minimum. I want 12 issues where Spider-Man has no powers. Um, and yeah, like some characters would be unaffected, right? Iron Man doesn't have power so he would still have his suit uh, and he'd become like uh, maybe he'd become like overextended uh-huh um just matt murdoch the lawyer <laughs> yep peter parker would just be like college student dating yeah uh, they, but they would have comic. memories of their superhero time they just can't access their powers yeah uh the fantastic four would just be like challengers of the unknown uh iron man would be unaffected right yeah, I was just saying he would just be like overextended. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I was checking. I was googling to see what hero. I was trying to find the old emails where we talked about it. I, yeah. I think we talked about it face to face pre internet, okay. <laughs> not pre internet, but pre us being separated on opposite sides of the country. Yeah, uh, yeah. It would be terrible. I'd read it. Yeah, I would read it too. I'd. I mean, I'd write it. Um. He points out, uh, so you point out, this is totally Doom story. He's talking about Secret Wars being a Dr. Doom story. He drives a story. He even had the strategy from issue one. He was right all along, actually. Rereading the last two issues, I think Cap was right. Maybe they were being too hard on Doom. Maybe he had transcended. Maybe the heroes were the bad guys. <laughs> there is a take on that. Like, if they didn't attack him, yeah, maybe, maybe he, he becomes doesn't. a benevolent god. Yeah. Um, uh, there's no way to know. Yeah. Uh, he put Magneto also had a great moment here. He was actively trying to be better. Even in the X-Men titles at the time, they were moving away from a mustache twirling villain to a more nuanced character. This is right around where he learned he had been in a concentration where we learned he had been, (laughs) he didn't learn where we learned he had been in a concentration camp. So it makes sense both for him to take a step towards doom and yet also hesitate. It's a great moment that cap speaks up for him too. There isn't a lot of great cap moments in the series, but that was a solid one. It definitely cemented the cap as the most fair person around. That's where cap points out that Magneto didn't, help doom he just considered it right right uh he says will hines would be a great doc ock oh man that'd be my honor uh and then he tells us we don't mind an apologizing an apologizing self-defeating doc ock i'll destroy you if that's okay i probably can't defeat you (laughs) spider-man you look Good. I well, you're very good at what you're doing. Let's face it. This is you know not looking good for me. I wish I ate better. <laughs> I'm, I'm out of shape. I, just, I, I know I'm not. I know. Look, I'm. these arms help, sure, but I'm still I'm still me. It's more of a George Costanza. <laughs> I can't. What am I doing here? I shouldn't be doing this. You I'm should not be the this bad guy. guy. Um. Uh, and then finally, speaking of crossovers, why not cover the Avengers Justice League America crossover by Kurt Busiek and George Perez? It's only four issues, and it's a big moment that I believe the end of Endgame basically aped to a degree. Uh, it's a great series uh, that Will has never read, I think. Never read it. Uh, thanks for the email, Justin. A few more, Will. Ready? I'm ready. 
Eric Tanoi emails us. Uh, Yo, Milk Sops. It seems like there were a bunch of wars and secret wars, but were there enough secrets? Oh, boy. It should have ended with Captain America telling everyone, we should never talk about these strange events here in Battle World. <laughs> they must remain secret wars. <laughs> That's true. What is so secret about it? That's actually a good point. I think, uh, I mean, obviously those names were just given to them by a toy company, but it's a secret to the readers, right? Okay. Because in the re- readers, they vanish and then come back, and they come back from the secret wars, and we don't know what happened there. That's the secret. Okay. Anyway, I ruined Eric's joke question with a serious <laughs> answer. Uh, I think we got one more. Yeah, last one. All right. Uh, this is from Tree, a Palmetto. Mm-hmm. Dear Los Bros Milksop. Love it. Uh, thank you for keeping the screw energy going through these sad months of pandemic life. I've certainly been enjoying listening to you on my weekly walk to my local comic shop in Brooklyn. I never used to visit comic shops weekly, but I started doing so during the pandemic in part because of your podcast and in part out of a desire to support at least one small business in a small but consistent way. I really enjoyed the Secret Wars season. The series was very fun, and while the ending was kind of terrible in my opinion, I should have expected it. After all, the underwhelming and rushed ending has become a tried and true element of even the better crossovers through comics history. Uh, in case nobody else does, I want to ask if either of you have heard or checked out the new Stan Lee biography that just came out, True Believer by Abraham Reisman. I think it could be worth an episode, but at least it's definitely worth the read. It doesn't necessarily shed new light on the old who authored what debate. Reisman basically argues that Stan didn't really create the characters, but his dialogue was very important for setting the Marvel tone, as you guys have often said, but it does give a lot of fun anecdotes as well as the insight into the ways that Stan was always trying to escape from comics even while becoming a superstar in the field. Fair warning, it's kind of sad, especially in the later parts, but it's a great read. Uh, Looking forward to your guest seasons. Can't wait to hear what people bring in. Uh, I have heard of this book, um, and uh, the interviews about it, the articles about it, are so much focus on Stan's a fraud. He didn't create anything that it makes me not want to read it, but I I hear it's good, so I might want to read it at some point. I've I've started it. Oh, you have? Uh, Yeah, um... A friend of mine out here uh, named Mark Rennie lent it to me and was like, this is a, I don't know what the, he said like he read it in three days, meaning like it's, it's fun or whatever, but it is, but he said it was sad. What he handed to me goes, this book's pretty hard on old Stan. Yeah. But That's um, the, the interviews that I've read about it are pretty hard on him or the articles about this book. And I was like, I don't want to read it. Uh, but then I started it and it, it, I don't know. It, it does seem to be well-written in that, like, it's a page-turner, sort of. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably I'm going to read it. Maybe I'll get some, like... I, I think I have already my own for, firm opinions on what credit Stan Lee is due. Yeah. So, like, I doubt that any book is going to change my mind on it. Without real proof, like, without somebody who's, like, there, it's hard to, like, change my mind. And this guy doesn't wasn't there. He just like read articles and emails and things like that. Uh, Danny Fingeroth also wrote a Stan Lee biography uh, that's very soft on Stan. And I, re- I listened to a brief podcast that uh, the Amazing Spider Chat tweeted out, uh, where those two kind of were on the same podcast talking about Stan. Hmm. Uh, and, I, and they were both very nice to each other. That was a very the Abraham and Fingeroth. Yeah, uh-huh. like they weren't like going at it. Um, they're like, yeah, well, I think Stan did more than you did. <laughs> like, But it wasn't like neither of them got like uppity about defending their position, um, which I kind of was hoping for a little bit, I guess. <laughs> uh, 
And I and, and I think the truth is somewhere in between, as you and I have constantly discussed. Like yeah. anybody who's just like Stan didn't do anything about the Fantastic Four creation That's seems insane. crazy. That's insane. Uh, but anybody who's sort of just like Stan is equally as creative as Kirby is. That's crazy also crazy. Too. Yeah. Um, when we talk about that with Tom Brevrud on the uh, episode that is out by now. Yeah. Um, Tom Brevort. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and or and. To get even more annoying about it, you could tell me that all Stan did was the dialogue. Uh, he, you know, didn't come up with anything about the character's plot or origins. And I still say that his involvement was crucial just for being yeah, the best editor in the history of superhero comics in terms of who to hire and who to get the ball to and what story to okay. And, you know, that, and from what I understand... And from what I understand, that's what Abraham's point is, right? That he just did the dialogue and editing, and that was that was pretty important. Okay, I mean, like, but I think yeah. he did. I think he did have some involvement in the creation. It's tough. If, if I, I the argument over the semantics of like, if I sit down and say, "Hey, Will, I want you to create a Superman character. Uh, I want him to have a K. I think he should be like Superman, but like sadder, um, and uh, he's." Uh, He's oh he's uh his origin is tied into like his girlfriend dumping him so that's like <laughs> and then you make that character and you, and you like add all these layers to it do I get zero credit for that do I get some credit for that and then you like we co-write it together after you come up with it even though like you maybe bring all the cool stuff to it I would think I would get some credit yeah like it's like I started it even if I just started with like we're gonna create a team of characters um. Let's talk it through. What are some kind of characters we could have? We need a strong guy. What yeah. if he's made of bricks? One of us says, "Oh yeah, that's good." You know, or yeah. you know, but it's probably like he's made of rocks. It's like, and then you sit down. You're like, "I'm gonna make him of bricks, and he's never gonna change it back." It's like, "Oh, that's better." Yeah, that's cool. Um, and the kid's a hothead, so oh, well, let's use that old human torch character. You know, I don't know. Like, there's probably some back and forth there in those early stories. Kirby's contributions to creation are way more important because he is very. Uh, he's a genius. Yeah. But Stan was in the mix and helped guide those formative stories. Spider-Man's not as good without Stan involved. And this is a question I asked you off the podcast once, but I'm going to ask you now, Will. Okay. You have a Marvel universe. Right. All right. It's the 60s. Marvel Comics is happening. Martin Goodman is there. Yes. Um, but there's no Steve Ditko. Steve Ditko right. just not, doesn't work for Marvel. Uh, they still make Spider-Man. Somebody else draws it. Maybe Kirby, maybe uh, Don Heck. Maybe they bring in somebody else um, right. from a, from another company. Just right. a non non Ditko comes in, but they still have Spider-Man. How does that affect the Marvel universe versus a Marvel universe where they got Ditko and they've got Stanley, but they don't have Kirby? Right. They still make. They still need to make a superhero team to compete with the Justice League. Uh. I, there's still a Thor. There's still an Iron Man. These characters, maybe uh, the Hulk. There's these characters are probably drastically different because they don't have Kirby's influence. Ditko maybe does a little bit more, and then is gone earlier. Uh, and he's leaning on some of these other guys more. You know, maybe uh, uh, Everett and and uh, uh, the guy who did Daredevil for a while. These, Wally these, Wood you know, or Wally uh, Alex Todd, not Alex Wally Wood or. Um, I forget the name of the guy. Anyway, <laughs> these other kind of artists kind of come in and do stuff, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or a Marvel Universe that has Ditko and has Kirby but doesn't have Stan Lee. 
has some other editor. Martin Goodman hired someone else to do it. He's like, hey, I want a Justice League comic. And, you know, they still come up with all these characters somewhat. Yeah. Which Marvel Universe is the most successful of those three? That's fascinating. I think, I mean, there's what's, no Marvel. What's, what's the most successful and also what's creatively the best? Because those might be different answers. Okay. Without Ditko, you could still have a successful Marvel Universe. Yeah. But it's just like, it's like the Bulls without Michael Jordan. Like a really good basketball team that does not change history, I think. Like it's really successful and Jack Kirby, you know, he is successful and they, but I, I think it's like, it doesn't age well, not, not like in a problematic sense, but just like emotionally, it's so shallow and just so crazed without Spidey's real center. It's just kind of all bombast. So it would mm -hmm. be like successful in the time and it wouldn't last. How about that? Okay. Did go. No Kirby. Well, you don't have a Marvel universe without Kirby because you lose 90% of the characters mm -hmm. and just, you don't have the volume of creation, but you still get Spider-Man. So it is a one character company. Spider-Man becomes great and there is no universe surrounding him. And it dies also when Ditko leaves. Uh, not just because that's the only thing he really did that cohered and he would get fed up and leave at some point. They'd get, you know, whoever to do it. It would be, that would be, it It would be like, I don't know. I can't think of another company that's like a one character company, but like something like Captain Marvel and whatever. Published Captain Marvel, probably absorbed by DC in, in your take. Yeah. And then um, no Stan Lee. I mean, this is the most damaging. Like there is no vision of a collective. Ditko still does stuff for Charlton or, you know, DC or whoever, and Kirby does stuff for DC, or maybe he gets together with Joe Simon again and they do something on his own. And, but these guys would be like the way Will Eisner is or Wally Wood, where they're, they're not famous. They're not like known by the general public. Um, they're just like well regarded within the industry. I think Stan is the, Stan is like the bowl and like Kirby and, Ditko or the food in the bowl. Like you got yeah. without the bowl, there's nothing. I don't know. The food splatters. So yeah. And that's sort of what I was thinking when it, when that just kind of popped in my head is like, I think Stan's the most important, not the most creative, but the most important piece. Yeah. Even if he's only question. like 10% of the creative energy, it's like the most important 10% where Ditko's probably also like 10% just because of the volume. Yeah. But it's like a, a, a less important 10%. I think if Ditko, if it was just Ditko, and this maybe it's just my love of Ditko, um, he probably gets stretched thin. He probably gets pulled on to things like FF and other books here and there to help launch them and stuff. And they're, none of them are as good because like his, like the FF would become such a weird comic. Yeah. And Iron Man would be such a weird comic, but it would also be like really cool. Like we'd go, people who read comics would be like, you gotta read this like Ditko universe that sort of fizzled out that Spider-Man yeah. was part of. And like, when DC absorbed Spider-Man, all those characters would probably slowly come up too. Like they'd be all like the supporting cast in the Spider-Man book. I mean, like, oh yeah, these are all these weird characters. This Iron Man guy is kooky. Yeah. And I think it would be, they'd be, I think that'd be creatively maybe the coolest, but also the least successful. Yeah. Uh, where the uh, Kirby Stan, no Ditko would probably be the most successful not, I mean, the only one that's really successful is all three. You need all three. You need all three. Like there's, you know, 
that that was a fire and I don't know, one of them's wood, one of them's heat, one of them's oxygen. You need all three. But like yeah. it's a it is I love that question because Stan is the most crucial. There's no Marvel comics without Stan. Yeah. It it just it it takes out the who created the FF from it and just goes, Who's important? Yeah. And they're all important. It just like it doesn't in all three of your scenarios, there's no Marvel comics now. There's no Avengers yeah. movie today. Absolutely. That's right. I guess Kirby is just like the just the sheer volume of quality ideas is Kirby. Yeah. Lee is the vision to stitch it all together into one universe. And Ditko's the emotional heart. Like his if, is the most real. If you still had Spider-Man, it probably still reverberates through DC and changes DC comics and just like those characters are better for it, but you just didn't get all these other cool characters. Yeah. And if you have the FF, like there's still some of that like Marvelness in the FF. Right. Um, so I bet it still has some effect on TC. I think it's just a slower, it's a slower transformation. Like that's going to happen anyway. At some point, comics are going to get to these more grounded, realistic everyman characters. There was a reason those worked. It would just yeah. take longer to get there. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's all we got. Well, that's a lot of emails. We did them all. Um, well, thanks everybody for listening to our mailbag episode. And, um, yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do another, if we get enough mail, we'll do another one of these. Uh, yeah. So, uh, keep listening. And if you're subscribed to our feed, you'll get the episodes when they come out. Uh, we said our emails and stuff like that, right? We said them at the top. You want to say okay. one more time? Screw it. Spidey at Gmail. Screw it. Comics on Instagram and screw it. Comics on Twitter. That's how you contact us. Yep. And uh, if you want to see Will, he's at the Mustard Seed Cafe uh, <laughs> Tuesdays at 10 a.m. <laughs> Stop in and say hi. I mean, it's, it could probably could work. <laughs> I, 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 li I like to go there. I've, I've gotten mail there. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody like mailed the... me something at Mustard Seed and the waiter called me up because we have each other's phone number. And he's like, Will, you have mail here. And I was like, I'll be there in 10 minutes. <laughs> it's a very like norm at cheers sort of scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't mind. I love the mustard seed. Yeah. Without the damaging alcoholism. Yeah. But, um, I mean, Hey, Norm looked like he was doing all right. Uh, okay. All right. Everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode. Bye. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. Just about comics. Merry Christmas, everyone. Alan Blake Bachelor here, the co-creator and head writer of One Million Musicals. Gasp! What's that beneath your tree? Why, it's a shiny new One Million Musicals Christmas special just for you! The South Pole Santa Claus! For the South Pole Santa Claus! Is there for you when you... a star-studded cast that includes Broadway's Ron Bomer, Kaylin Fu, Cody Jameson Strand, Sandra Joseph, John Pinto Jr., Teddy Trice, and starring Corey Jones as the South Pole Santa Claus. Coming December 21st, subscribe to One Million Musicals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Campfire.